Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The hand is over. We're kind of old-fashioned. We like to make it in bed. You think I've done something wrong, don't you? 
nurture. Torment he could not bear. Truth he would not face. Pictures presents Michael Caine in The Hand. Our friends at Letterboxd have done something cool. Once again, if you haven't checked out your 2020 year in review, uh, all the stats are, are up and polished and shiny and they look terrific. Uh, and uh, you should go check it out because the service is amazing and the catalog is fantastic. And as you know, Andy Nelson is a real purveyor of stats. Mm, I sure am. I love statistics. And their year in review is just always a fun thing to look at just to kind of see what... It's not just like the best films of the year and stuff. I mean, they go through the highest rated films what were the most popular films what were the trends which directors were popular i mean they even have an in memoriam section they do all sorts of countdowns what films were most obsessively watched which rate rich reviewers were the most divisive all sorts of fantastic uh, different statistics that they're able to pull from all the reviews that people are adding on over the course of the year. And, you know, 2020 was kind of a weird year. And and they said that they had a huge growth in the number of movies getting reviewed um, starting, you know, essentially March, April of 2020. And so yeah. it allows for a really interesting uh, kind of just glimpse into uh, what people were digging into. And I've even seen them. Yeah, this is another great thing about them. You know, somebody posted, I think on, I don't know if it was on their Twitter account or Facebook page, but posted a question to them. Like, you know, it was a lot of people were watching a lot of movies last year. What was the film from each year that was the uh, most watched film? And Letterboxd did an asked and answered thing. And now you can go look and, and check out every film from each year, starting now all the way back to the beginning. There are a few gaps of years um, in the early years, but for the most part, every year has a film that uh, they post as this is the one that most people watched. And it's really interesting to look at because a lot of times you're like, wow, that's the film most people were watching that particular year. I looked at it and I think I ended up watching. Was it 17 again? Um, it was 17 again. No, I ended up watching 17 of the total uh, number of films in in that whole group last year too so it's just kind of a fun statistic to look at um, but yeah i mean this is why we love letterbox they do all this sort of stuff as pro members or patron members you get even more things to use in your exploration of your love for movies and and uh, talking to people about movies that whole movie community so next the next real.com slash letterbox definitely uh, definitely look at the membership options there. yeah and you'll get a discount at 20 percent off if you sign up and that is also good for renewals. So if you're within, I think, 45 days uh, of your renewal coming up and you want a little bit of a break, 20% off thenextreel.com slash letterbox. All right, Andy. Welcome to the hand. El mano. Here we are. Oliver Stone. Oh, Oliver Stone. All right. How did we get ourselves into this? Racket. This was one of those funny things that I can't remember the conversation that was happening in our Discord 
community, but somehow Oliver Stone came up as somebody with some interesting films in his filmography. And I was looking at, you know, what he did in the 1980s. And I'm like, he has a really interesting trajectory in the 80s that really shows kind of it, it to a certain extent sets the course for who he would end up really becoming as a filmmaker. I mean, he had already uh, done well with Midnight Express, which came out in 1979 or 78. Uh, and then uh, he won a, an Oscar for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. And he had his um, an indie film that he had made back in 1973. But, you know, these were kind of early. At Midnight Express, you can certainly get a sense of the type of project he was interested in working on. But really, starting here with The Hand in 1981, which is kind of a low-end horror film, and you can see as over the course of the 80s, Oliver Stone really kind of exploring the things that he was going to start getting more and more interested in as the decade progresses. One, especially once he returns to directing, definitely going to start seeing a lot more of political things, things that directly affected him, like the Vietnam War, and move into just more of the kind of the controversial elements that he loves to dig into. So, but this is a really interesting place to start because this has nothing to do with really anything we see as Oliver Stone, but it really it's just a place to kind of set the stage for him as a studio director. This is his first studio-directed film. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting one to look back in history and and kind of explore based on all of that. I've said on the show that Ari Aster defines my experience with filmmakers who have the highest spread between favorite and reviled films. Uh, And (laughs) I I really think, uh, you know, going back and looking and preparing for this conversation and and this series, which is extensive. I mean, it's a lot of movies we're going to be talking about. It really should have been more aptly applied to Oliver Stone. It's the Oliver Stone rule, right? I'm I'm not sure this particular series will demonstrate that uh, because it doesn't deal with the entire arc of his career. Career, but uh, it, it might very well get us pretty close as, as a filmmaker that I'm wildly split on mm. uh, is overall body of work. Uh, uh, Oliver Stone's the guy. Um, and so I, I'm really interested to see uh, how this plays out. I, I am not sure that the hand um, is a great example of. Uh, if I were to try to somehow prove myself wrong <laughs> on that scale. Uh, it, it's an interesting experimental uh, film to, to watch where he's starting here. Like, he hasn't quite realized his critique for country, like fully realized it, his, his passion for country, his critique of financial systems, um, and, and is still exploring rudiments of filmmaking and, and just trying stuff uh, before the tools kind of get out of the way. He is an incredibly adept filmmaker, and whether what he does really connects with me or not, that none of that uh, is in any way um, a, a critique of his his skill. This film feels like he's still sort of honing that, sharpening it, and and trying to figure out, you know, what what kinds of stories can I tell, um, you know, about people uh, that 
and and their internal struggle, right? The internal struggle of man. That's a constant sort of theme, even if we're dealing with with the uh, you know with the the high end finance and and global power. Uh, it's still really he he he's talking about these these sort of internal struggles about who we are and what we want and what we want to accomplish and the the price of power and. That is on display in this movie, uh, and it's told through ultimately a pretty small story about a cartoonist and his wife and their marriage as it's dissolving and his ultimate impotence that comes from losing his dominant hand in a car accident. It's the sort of story that you can't, and this is why horror is really a good genre to explore these sorts of things, because... And that's that's I think when horror often does things best. And I'm not saying this is horror at its best, but still, you're exploring a divorce. You're exploring a man who you know has his career taken away from him. You're you're exploring a lot of interesting elements to this uh, this man about uh, kind of just everything going on in his life as things are are falling apart, and it really becomes this. Uh, especially the way that Stone directs elements of the film, it becomes a an exploration of a man kind of descending into madness, which I, I thought there were some interesting elements of throughout the film. I think, yeah, you're right. It doesn't display Stone at his best. But for a first studio film, I think he's probably doing what the studio was was, you know, hired him to do. I think it's an interesting enough film. And I think there are signs of uh, cinematic tools he's playing with that show, okay, I can see him starting to explore how to how to use these tools to portray a mental state, to portray, uh, you know, you know, inside a character's mind, things like that, that I was like, okay, I, I see Stone, the starts of Oliver Stone in this film. And I thought it was... Uh, while not the best film, an interesting study. It, it's an angry film. This movie's angry almost from the get-go, right? I mean, from the opening credits, he's writing an angry character, right? You see these close-ups on his, his comics. And, and I think, although I don't, I don't remember because it's been a long time since I've watched a lot of Oliver Stone right in a, in a row, but I think anger, fear, abandonment, shame, I think these are things that are that are the uh, sort of perennial favorites of stone. It'll be interesting for me, I, I think, to see how, um, you know, how what he's holding up for us to learn about those things here. It, does it matter in this movie in particular, or is it just a flex? All right, just look at me. I, I'm writing angry people. I'm writing people who are who who are maladapted uh, to relationships with others. Or, um, you know, does it does does it matter uh, in his ultimate sort of descent, as you say, into madness? Stone talks about the idea of the villain as the self, uh, which he says is something that he's he he finds in his films as he's kind of looked back on them. He ends up finding that happening a lot in his stories with his protagonists. That there's not necessarily an antagonist per se, but it's it's you know man versus himself types of stories. When you're looking at kind right. of you know the whatever the overall five story types that there are man versus himself man versus nature man versus man whatever they are um that's the that's the story archetype that he seems to be most drawn to and you see that on display here this is really this particular character of john as he's 
battling with all of these struggles that he's having with with his own life. And I find that to be uh, kind of a really interesting way to explore it. I do too. So, okay, so let's explore it. And let me just talk about why I struggle with hand movies. Any, and I don't know. I, <laughs> is that I, a, a whole genre in and of itself? <laughs> I wonder if it is. Movies about severed hands, right? I know uh, one of my favorites is, uh, the, is the one with the guy who, um, what's it called? Idle Hands. Idle Hands. I love Idle Hands. But are there others? Uh, movies about severed hands. I think I think there There's are others. The hand, yeah. The hands well, of Orlock, e- the Beast with Five Fingers. Beast, uh, Evil Dead 2, uh, Adam's Family obviously is a is a go-to character <laughs> that is a hand. Not quite uh, as terrific, Dr. but yes. House of Horrors, um, the Exterminating Angel, uh, of course, Idle Hands. I, here's the thing about hand movies. They're fun to make as a filmmaker. They're fun to make because especially in this area, you put somebody in a green screen and then chroma key out green suit and, and suddenly you have something really fun. It's why as a kid, it's always fun to go to a TV station and do the weather, right? It's just cute, right? <laughs> um, but as soon as you put it in a narrative construct, I, I, I generally hate it because of leverage. <laughs> it's just... There's just no way it makes sense to in my brain that a hand can be so diabolical because it's not attached to anything with any weight at all to it. I don't buy it. I never buy it. So the extent to which I can enjoy a movie is usually the extent to which they can distract me from the things that are wrong with uh, disembodied hands. They don't work. They're stupid. Your take. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I've seen any, really. I never saw Idle Hands. Uh, the other ones, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like I've seen, like in Evil Dead 2, yeah. I've seen in places, but it's always been in a less serious context. Right. And so to that end, you know, it. I mean, it takes me back to the silliest of contexts, which is an Amazing Stories episode, Um with a hell with it, it's called I think it's called um I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically about a toupee that basically does the same thing. And when the toupee gets on a particular bald person's head, it makes them kill. And uh, it was a whole just kind of completely silly, amazing stories episode. And the guy figures it out because he's talking about lawyers. And he'll be, yeah, lawyers sure are hell to pay. Hell to pay. It's a hell to pay. And it's just, it's so silly. <laughs> and that, and I feel like that they came up with that based on that, probably figuring out the joke first. Um, it's, uh, I find the whole concept really illogical too. And I struggle with it particularly throughout this story. And uh, especially when it gets to a point where is the hand journeying across the country? Like exactly what's happening with this hand here? So yeah, I, I, I think I have a hard time buying into this story. But again, it's one of these things where it's like you have to divorce yourself from the realities and say, okay, how much of this can I just let go and say, I'm just going to ride this train and see if I can come out the other end still enjoying it. 100%. You're exactly right. And that's that's my point. Like, yeah. if the rest of it is interesting you can't get enough, on the train. you can... <laughs> yeah, you can get on the train. And, yeah. um, and and so I think for me, the film, what the film has going for it is uh, young Michael Caine, right? That we're introduced to Michael Caine. He already like and, and I'm coming into this film. Had you seen it before? Nope. 
Okay, this is the first time. All right. So, um, and me too. And I've heard a lot about it. And and uh, I, I or just because it was one of those movies that's just like I don't know. It was probably a slumber party movie in rotation when I was a kid, but um, I, I just <laughs> never got around to seeing it. Right. And so I was surprised at the sort of B movie elements in the movie and the fact that we have Michael Caine going through a a really serious experience and I found I could relate a lot to his experience of loss and his career and the challenges in his marriage and all of those things were very very human uh, elements and I think they were presented very well in this movie overall I thought the experience was was great so how much did that experience and the portrayal of the his descent uh get sidelined by this wackadoo you know roving hand around the as it's crawling through the grass and the the killer creature pov which is the hand pov um like how much did that distract from the other human elements that i thought were really great in this movie and i i think i think he's wise that much of the movie does not center on uh effect shots of the hand most of the movie is with him and his his experience i think that all the stuff with michael kane descending into madness or with the character of john descending into madness works i think that it's actually an interesting portrayal of this person who whose life is broken uh with this loss of this hand and the whole idea that you know everything in his life is now falling apart because of it essentially like he he focuses everything on that and this is where I'm saying, like, Oliver Stone does some interesting things as we're watching him descend into madness, whether it's, like, fading to black and white, like, fading all the color mm-hmm. out periodically as we're, like, now we're in his sick mental state of what he's envisioning he wishes could happen or what he's seeing or whatever it may be. I find that found that to be really interesting. Likewise, at some point, we start seeing some white flashes of light that just kind of flash through the frame like this is he's breaking like he's going through this breaking point here. I found that stuff really interesting. And in the story of a man who is breaking psychologically, I found it to be really interesting. And what I I thought was interesting by the time we get to the end of this story is that you, you still find yourself questioning. Is there really a hand out there? that is doing all this stuff or is it just him and all of this is in his head and i find that to be actually successfully done through to the end when i question a little bit because the doctor is so far from him at the point where the hand kills her before he's like freed himself so he could potentially do it but still i'm like i still think that it's done in a way where you could you could paint this whole thing either way and i found that really uh, really strong. And that's an element that helps me get past the idea of a crazy monster hand crawling around killing people. I know. I That's the part I don't I don't know if we're divided. I'm honestly still on the fence on how I feel about the final sequence, right? Because we we have already been through the motions where uh, we don't know whether to trust whether or not it's a hand or whether it's him. We have this quite definitive replay uh when his 
you know, when he, he sort of comes to in the garage and he goes back and, and sort of remembers that it was actually him who was killing these people and putting them in the trunk of his car. Um, and so we think it's solved. We think it's resolved. And then, you know, we have this coda where we're in this interview with the doctor and weird reverb on her voice. Let me just throw that in there. I didn't, didn't care for it. Um, and so the replay has already put all the pieces together. And then, my God, it's like his villain's origin story, right? It turns out you're right. He's way too far across the room. And yet there's a hand on her, strangles her, smashes her head against the floor. Um, and now I'm feeling like I'm in a Shyamalan story. It's like this is part of the unbreakable sequence, you know? Um, yeah. And and it, it has that actual tone to it, too. I, I wonder uh, how... Uh, M. Night Shyamalan feels about the hand because it feels like there's some homage material in his own work to back to this movie. Um, so uh, I I don't know how I feel about that. I, it is it puts the a lot of weight on the elements that I find the most stupid in this movie as central to the, the where the character lands in this movie. And I'm not crazy about it. Uh, where I, I think a lot of the movie works for me. I think I'm coming down that that doesn't as much. I didn't want the hand. I just wanted him in treatment. <laughs> this is the dilemma that any filmmaker, especially in the 80s, would face when making yeah. their first uh, feature, studio feature, that is a horror film. You have to have that jump end. Like ever since Carrie said, this is really effective because the audience walks out you know, with this last big jump scare. And it's a it's a brilliant way to kind of amp that last bit up. So the audience walks out like, oh, my God, was it what did, what did it really happen or what? And that, I think, is the nature of what they probably had to do in order to make this successful. I don't know um, if the original source material, the lizard's tale, actually dealt with this at all. I'm not I'm not quite sure by Mark Brandel. Uh, I, I know that um, Oliver Stone really liked the novel. I, I know that he found it and found it to be a really interesting psychological portrayal of a man like descending in divorce, essentially. But I don't know for sure if uh, if it has that same coda of an ending. But that to me felt uh, the strongest nature of this is an 80s horror movie. We have to have that that twist end happen. Yeah, I think I'm I'm sure you're right and uh, you know he's saddled with some of those expectations. I think as a film it it works less as a result of it uh in yeah. the, the long arc of cinema history. Yeah. Right, uh, which I is do unfortunate. Too. Yeah. So you want to talk about the treatment of the hand? Get that out of the way? Yeah, let's start first with the actual severing of the hand. Let's start with that. I think that's a fair place to begin, is the whole idea of losing a hand in a car accident. Let me just tell you, Pete, I had never heard of this movie, but I had heard that this could happen to you because as a kid, you know, kids, I, as we're driving, I would stick my hand out of the window, whether it's to do the little airplane thing oh, or yeah. just have your arm resting because it's hot and your arm is resting out with the hand out the window, whatever it was. I heard this so many times. You know, if you leave your hand out the window, a car could come by and cut it clean off. I, I had heard that all the time. I've probably said it to my own kids. <laughs> Did you believe it? I believed it enough to go to sometimes go, oh, maybe I'll just bring it in a little closer, you know? <laughs> 
because, you know, sometimes you, you know, have those cars that go by so fast that you yeah. feel, feel the air like shake in your own car. Right. It's like, you don't oh, even know. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just I, like, yeah, it's probably better that I just bring it in a little bit. I was wondering if it was classified with, uh, you know, don't cross your eyes. They'll stick that way. And don't sure. sit close, so close to the TV. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and then they, of course, do it. And that's one of the things that horror movies do really well is, uh, you know, show us the things that are, um, you know, lore and demonstrate how they can happen and make them real and make us scared of them. And I think that's really great. And, and in this case, again, to tie to the human issues, he's already struggling, right? He's struggling in his marriage. It's falling apart. He's in, he wants to maintain control. He's super masculine, tropey stuff going on Very. here. Um, he draws a character in his comics we've been introduced to, this Mandro character, and and the thing they show us in the close-up is, now that I control you, I must consider how you can best serve me, right? All language of control. And here he is in the passenger seat of this car, and he looks uncomfortable, and all I can think is, that guy wants to be driving right now. He already feels like he's completely out of control, awash in, in loss. And... Yeah. His hand is out the window as he's waving. Uh, and what does he say? Get get back, you old cow, he says. To, and only Michael Caine can say something like that and get away with it. Yeah. It, well, the whole thing felt very, um, yeah, it just felt like a, a setup because it's oh, yeah. like you've got the crazy person behind you who wants to pass as honking at you as being obnoxious. He's being obnoxious to them instead of just slowing down and just letting the crazy person go by. He's like, you know, egging his wife on, don't let them go by. And then, of course, they're trying to pass this track. All this stuff is happening. I will say the whole idea, like watching this, the hand getting severed as all like as all these pieces come into play at the at the precise moment. I found that incredibly effective, the way that his wife kind of turns and it, it right at the moment that they hit the back of that car and his arm is out as he's trying to uh, signal to that uh, that lady behind them. And and they hit that truck right at that that worst possible moment and his hand is severed blood everywhere. He's screaming. I thought it was a really really effective bit of of sequencing like i i thought it all worked really well the way that uh, stone constructed that so as as you can say about a hand getting severed i found the whole thing enjoyable to watch <laughs> <laughs> i know that sounds terrible but yeah uh I, I, a couple of a couple of points uh his wife um is made out to be um i i think a completely out of control um sort of diminished i didn't i wasn't crazy with what they did with her because it felt like i well i agree with you generally the sequence in favor of the severing of the arm works um i had a hard time believing that she was so out of control that and and so paralyzed in fear at that moment that she couldn't steer down into the you know bit off the road and get them out of out of harm's way. I, I had a little bit of trouble because they, they made her completely whelpy and, and I, I didn't like that. But it also felt true of the time. Like I, there are a lot of, you know, examples of characters like that. I just feel like that was a dated element, uh, to me. And, uh, but it, it countered that, uh, after the severing of the arm, there is, I don't know, maybe 15 seconds where we don't see what's going on in the car as the cars kind of, you know, 
go in all their separate ways. Yeah. And I found that incredibly tense. Those seconds mm-hmm. were incredibly tense because I wanted to know what is going on in the car. Like I wanted to see like him and what's going on. It was a mystery. And I thought that was really taught uh, yeah. a, a great choice to kind of suspend that anxiety uh, until he actually gets out of the car. And then there's blood spurting everywhere. All over her comically, face. Comically. All him. over the place. It reminded me of the alien uh, chest burster scene. Because it's just like blood. Like, did they tell her it was going to hit her in the face? Because she reacted really well to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it is a castration scene, right? On on reflection, this is a castration story. This is a guy whose entire sense of control was already, already in question. And now he has lost the thing that gives him uh power in the world his dominant hand his drawing hand he's now losing his career uh he's everything's falling apart for the guy and i think the setup of the character leading to the the ultimate manual castration is great i think it works really well and then from there you start seeing the hand i think largely as pov initially before you really see it i you might see before that you may see his imagined versions of the hand this kind of molding rotting thing laying in the ground bugs crawling all over it like feeding on it even when he talks about that like that's how he describes it like it's probably just bones now it's probably all the bugs and birds and everything's probably already fed it all off fed everything off it and so he paints a really kind of disgusting image of what that is but then once you start seeing the hand it's it's definitely there there's the trick effect work where you see it crawling but the camera cuts off right after the wrist so you don't have to see that there's a whole person back there you know and then when you see it actually in motion you know at times it works better than others now carlo rimbaldi had done the effects work on this and stone said that you know later in the filming uh stan winston and Uh, Tom Berman actually came in later in the process to help out. And that's when Stone said that the hand started looking better, like all the effects started working better because they were uh, involved. So I don't know what that says about Carlo Rimbaldi, who's done stuff that we've talked about before, you know, or if it was just a budget thing or if it was something between Rimbaldi and Stone, I have no idea. But I think that there are times the hand does work better than others. Also, it's it's one of those things where there are times where the shots are short enough where I'm like, OK, it was just enough where I bought yep. it. Yep. Now, let me ask you about sound and what this does <laughs> to your understanding of the narrative of, of the story. Does I, just let it sink in. Right. Does the hand breathe? <laughs> does it breathe? Does it make noises? Uh, according to Alan Hoarth, who apparently was designing the sound for the hand, apparently it does. I had a real problem with that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why are we hearing breathing sounds with this POV shot as the hand is crawling through the grass? (laughs) Yeah, it's a mystery. Although I wonder, I wonder how much of a, a mystery it should be. Like, ultimately... If you are of a mind that there is nothing mystical going on, and in fact, it's just his descent into madness, then the breathing should be him. Right. Right. That it's it's we're hearing him. 
And that is the ultimate giveaway of the movie, right? If if you know that already, if you already buy that, then you you understand that, you know, that's the that's the big spoiler. Yeah. Of course, that's ruined when there's a hand at the end. And but um, <laughs> but I, I think it lends to the uh, confusion of this character and the ultimate resolution and and or, or I should say the open endedness of of the whole thing. Yeah. That 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 breathing should be his internal experience of crawling around in the grass <laughs> well it doesn't work for me either no, right? it doesn't, it's silly it, i mean it, and it makes more sense when it is him because otherwise like how does the hand go from vermont to new york to california like there's no logical way <laughs> just, this were, hand is taking there was these. no shot of the hand like <laughs> holding onto an exhaust pipe right i i want it to be <laughs> right like <laughs> exactly like hanging off a bumper <laughs> <laughs> right? just like a family going by like well, that's a weird little thing to hang on your bumper yeah. <laughs> that sort right. of thing yeah all that sort of stuff it just yeah because otherwise yeah. It, it and it turns into what's the journey about like the the three animals who oh, whose owners move and they have to journey across the country to find their their family you know there's a like two dogs and a cat or whatever you know yeah the, it's like you know, and the hand who joins along as as it goes on its own <laughs> trip with them. Bye, you know. <laughs> I want to see that yeah, mashup. That's exactly it. I see that mashup. Yeah. So that's the only way any of this story makes any sense is that it is in his mind. Otherwise, it just it, it's illogical. And I will say to that end, it's incredibly predictable. Like I don't know how early on you kind of were like, well, this is just all him, clearly. Yeah. But it was like really early on. Like, I, I can't remember when he was oh. looking for the hand or what, it, but I'm like, this is yeah. all just his mental state. This hand doesn't really exist. And so I was like, is, is the film telegraphing that too much in context of what we're supposed to believe? Because uh, to a certain extent, I, I, I was like, I, I feel like I already know where this is all going. I 100% agree with you. I think the movie is, it, it, like the moment the hand was severed, I feel like I knew, oh, this is going to be, I, it's, it's him. It's Phantom Limb. He's in with the doctor's office and the doctor says to him out loud, oh, that feeling? Yeah, that never goes away. You're going to feel your fingers. Like it's just the way you, it's Phantom Limb stuff. Yeah. And so I, I just, I, I feel like that was telegraphed too early. But again, it depends on what the story is, right? What is Oliver Stone, like what's his favorite part of the story? And I don't think it's the hand. Yeah, no, I think it's the psychological breakdown. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if he's telegraphing the hand stuff so early. He's talking. He's telling a story about John Lansford and and his experience of of being emotionally, professionally castrated. Yeah, but even that is just. It's I, I still find it predictable as a story because I yes. mean, even with Brian, you know, when he's talking to Brian um, in the bar a number of times, um, who, you know, it's always fun to see Bruce McGill, particularly as kind of like a a hippie college. <laughs> teacher i thought that was yeah. a great turn for him as a character uh, yep. actor but i really like he brings up quite a number of times in their conversations the whole idea of blacking out and oh how dangerous it is to black out you don't know what you could be doing when you're blacking out yeah like all of this stuff i'm like geez you could have <laughs> killed somebody he says in the open yeah, in his mouth voice <laughs> I was just like, wow, they are just, they are really hitting the nail on this head. But, Laying it on pretty thick. Yeah. But to that end, 
as a character exploration and watching him still take this descent into madness, I loved watching Michael Caine. Like, I love, there's something about his late 70s, early 80s hairdo that works really well, especially when he starts going mad and it just turns into like this crazy man's kind of big head of hair. Like, I, I thought going I thought, mad or chopping wood, Andy. <laughs> or chopping Don't wood. Don't forget chopping wood. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, you know, I think Michael Caine, um, I know he generally up to this point had been playing more good characters. And I think, uh, I think he even said to Oliver Stone at some point, as I recall, that it was, this was a harder character for him to play because it was, he was such a kind of a, a overbearing and psychologically damaged uh, man who kind of was the, his own villain. It was a harder thing for him to play, but I loved watching him. I thought he did a great job in the film. What other, let's see, this was 81. Mm-hmm. What other horror movies has he done? I mean, he did Jaws 2, right? No, Jaws, no, it was, was Jaws, that Jaws 4. He <laughs> was in The Jaws Revenge. 4. Den- the Den- Revenge, the right, right, right. That's what it was. And that was in yeah. uh, Jaws That was like 84. That was 87. So, 87. That was 87. What else did, has he done where he's played a dark character like this well he's played tough characters like you know get carter types of characters um or the italian job but i don't think those were necessarily like villainous characters i i and then uh, geez the island was right before this but i can't remember i can't remember where his character landed in that dressed to kill i don't feel like he's been a villain that much as i go through his list and and it's interesting in particular because I think he's really good at it. Like I think he's he's so great at being this this guy. And, and I I like seeing it. He is he is the redemptive force of this movie for me. I just like watching him do it. And I I don't know how I would have felt in 1981 not knowing quite so much about him at the time and being very young myself. Like I I'm not sure this would have this would have held sway for me because of the hand stuff, because I was into that then. But in terms of, of sustainability, kind of staying power of the film, uh, it's I'm, I'm here because of Michael Caine. I enjoy watching him. Yeah, he's he's always just a delight to watch. He's one of those actors. And I think Oliver Stone was a young enough director where uh, Stone would after a take say stuff to him like you know i'm not seeing it i'm not seeing the emotion in there and and kane would just say to him and in you know and you can totally hear this but like you'll see it in the rushes dear boy you know it's just like it just mm-hmm. is like yeah that whole dear boy thing totally sounds like like him and yeah and it was and i think that he's he's doing the stuff here and i think it works well i somewhat by his relationship with uh andrea markovici as his wife Anne, you know I see them as an interesting couple. I can see them together, but I also felt like it's harder because, I mean, we're really walking into this film with them already kind of on the rocks, at least as far as she's concerned. He thinks everything's fine. And this is, you know, I mean, we have a divorce podcast that we also do, um, How to Split the Toaster. And I think that you're seeing a lot of that. You know, they say it takes three years to get to the point where you're ready for a divorce. And I think we're seeing that middle ground right here where Anne is wanting to go do one thing and he's wanting to do something else. And and yeah. she's kind of pushing and we're leading down the road to that. I think that's that was an interesting um, way to do the relationship. But it does make it harder to connect with her character because we're just not spending much time with her, you know. And I, I feel... 
I feel bad because I would like to feel like I ended up walking away from this with more of a connection to her. I mean, we have we have connection to their daughter, Lizzie, a little more, um, played by Mara Hobel. But other than that, I just I I didn't really connect with them much. Well, and I I think that's important to note, like that this is also. Yeah, as much as it's all these other things, it's also a divorce story. And part of that castration of losing the hand is also uh, representative or symbolic of of the marriage dissolving, right? Losing something that was so important to you as a person as part of your identity. And now it's leaving you. And that and and what sort of stress and anxiety does that cause? I, I think we, we can't watch this movie and not have that have that said out loud that this is this is also insofar as it contains multitudes it's a divorce story and it's a kind of a gross one and the hand breathes but it's a divorce story <laughs> do we, do we, should we talk about tropes yeah there were a few tropes in here that i think were Trope kind of funny corner. Trope corner we have the character really talking about why he hates shrinks and all of like that whole speech that he gives about um you know paying someone to uh to just you know air your problems and after you know after you've paid them hundred dollars an hour and then you've paid them a thousand dollars they'll say i think we're getting somewhere and then by the time you're ten thousand dollars paid in that the, they'll say that you're cured and he like the whole thing i'm just like i feel like i've heard this conversation in films far too many times and by in 1981 maybe it was at that early stage when the whole idea of shrinks was really just starting to kind of kick in after the the uh, 60s and 70s but i felt like this hit this point where i'm just like already i'm like ah oh, geez here we go again well and they make him the subject of her affair right the shrink right like right she's sleeping with him and again it, it's a massive sign of disrespect to the therapy industry that was super popular at the time and so not only does he hate shrinks there's a trope but two is justified to hate shrinks like that's the other side of the same trope and it's it's kind of obnoxious i think i was misunderstanding what you were saying because the way that you said that i thought you were saying that she was having an affair with his therapist the the shrink that they wanted him to see but that's no, not what you were saying. I was okay. not saying that. I was just saying that the film presents a generally disrespectful view of therapy. Well, yeah, yeah, it really does. And it's funny because it felt so early 80s, this whole idea of yeah. the Origin Institute, this place where you do yoga and you think about you work on yourself and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, they're really poking at this. Uh, and it yeah. just felt very 80s for that whole um, that whole line in the story here. Totally. So uh, then we get to teachers. Don't forget, lots of lots of tropes around teachers and students. You've got the student hitting on the teacher, the teacher sleeping with the student. I mean, these are things. And then that ties into this whole trope, which definitely came out of, I think, the 70s. Uh, it might have been a little earlier, but the whole idea that the man can cheat, but far be it for the woman to cheat, you know, that whole mm -hmm. thing. It just, that definitely was something else that came out. Um, last but not least, <laughs> there was the old uh, jump scare trope that seems to be popular in horror movies, but the tree branch through the window trope. Yeah, I don't get that one in this movie. No, and it never goes anywhere. It's just designed it for, it's yeah. just a jump scare. The whole thing. Yeah. It makes me think of Poltergeist and how great it works there because the tree's already scary and then yeah. when it comes through the window is a payoff. Right. And that's huge. It's huge. Here, it's just, it's nothing. It's, it's substanceless. It, it happens. You never even deal with cleanup 
or anything. It's just like you right. don't even see an open window that the rain is coming in or anything. It's just it's there. Right. It's pretty pathetic. I will say, though, I have never seen and this may be the only film that I've seen it in where a cat <laughs> after the cat jump scare, because we also have the cat jump scare where it jumps onto his desk. But then the cat actually leaps through the window to escape. I've never seen that in a film where a cat is so terrified of something that it actually <laughs> breaks through a window to get away from it. That yeah. was fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a hell of a cat. I, there, they, there are a couple of things that, you know, I, I feel like they are. They don't work for me in this movie because I've never even come close to seeing them happen in real life. And the tree branch through the window and the cat escaping. And the, I mean, those are things that are just they just are kind of silly. Also, severed hand crawling through the field. Never seen that. It's all right. Um <laughs> They did do a couple of things great. I, I think, you know, giving him the, I, I like the, uh, the hand and that they, they give him a glove and say, you know, to, and of course that allows us to have the whole movie with Michael Caine actually really acting. But what I <laughs> love about it is that, it, and maybe this is particularly dated because of the era of COVID where he says, you could change the glove every month, month and a half. <laughs> right. That is disgusting hands are awful <laughs> he did not give him a vat of hand sanitizer at the same time right and that's a, that is medical malpractice especially when you see all the things he's doing with his hand i'm like i would watch oh. that you know every couple hours at least dirty dirty like lumberjack murder hands yeah. that are never washed never washed covered in blood dried blood dried body parts yeah yeah dried meat as he's trying to cook you know, totally. going back to this whole idea of of him as the killer or not, it's it's an interesting story element, the way that it's portrayed. And I mentioned that we have some interesting mental depictions in the film as as everything drops to black and white, and then we're seeing it kind of more through his state of mind. I found it to be one scene that we haven't talked about yet is when he's, this is after he goes into the Origin Institute and he sees his wife in the class kind of the yoga class i mean all it is is a yoga class and the yoga instructor seems a little too maybe close trying to show a little handsy little handsy trying to show her (laughs) very punny of you uh how to do her kind of positioning and everything and of course john leaves and he's upset about all of this and he immediately runs into a homeless person played by oliver stone which was kind of fun to see Mm mm-hmm and this person is just, you know, it, it, it's, again, it's a very tropey sort of interaction with a homeless person in a film. And we have this particular moment as it, uh, as it plays out. And then it goes into black and white. And we are meant to think that this hand kills this homeless person. And it made me wonder, especially as we get to the end, because this is never brought up again. The fact that theoretically we're, I suppose, meant to assume that aside from the two bodies in his trunk, there is also a dead bum in the back of an alley somewhere in New York City that also no one would have ever, you know, known who done it, but is the victim of John. Right. More bodies. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, in that respect, it's it's very much a, a sort of American psycho story. And I'm so glad that we're doing our Mary Heron series after this, because it gives us an excuse to talk about sort of the effective dissociative state murder case. What kind of scaffolding do you need narratively to make that pay off? And uh, so I, I think in this case, we've like the cat in the window, we've just 
left this other the the bum out there. Maybe that's Stone making a statement, right, about the viability of certain people over others. Maybe that's the statement. It does not work. It would be on brand for Stone to do something like that, but it does not work in this movie to me. It certainly isn't a statement. All it felt like was, we need to get a kill in here soon. You know, I feel like studio head. Can we get, there needs to just get a kill. We need some horror sequence. Body count. Body count. Get it up. Get up We need body count. Yeah. That's unfortunately what it really ends up feeling like. Because otherwise, like we had never seen anything in the film that would have led us to believe that John has has had a confrontation with a homeless person before that didn't go well and he felt horrified or disgusted or anything like there was nothing that ever kind of seemed to put him in that fragile state that would lead him to actually kill this person. You know, and I guess we're just meant to believe it was purely the interaction of his wife and with uh, with the teacher. Mm-hmm. That really kind of led to that. And so I'm like, eh. hmm, that wasn't completely convinced by it. Let's talk about getting it made. Yeah. So I already talked a little bit about the book that Stone found um, and used as the source material for this. The comic itself that we see uh, Lansdale drawing, Stone, at, by this point in his career, um, he had already written the the drafts of the script for Conan the Barbarian which we'll be talking about next week. We'd already written, uh, he'd already uh, written that one, and he'd been working with the artist, Conan, uh, Conan's artist, Barry Windsor Smith, who is the artist on the, on the comic at the time, and had Barry actually come in to do all of the artwork for Mandro. So everything you're seeing here, you can see why it has kind of that Conan-esque feel to it. It's because he's doing the Very artwork much. for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, last but not least, uh, I, I think this is, it was kind of interesting because he had already written Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July, I think largely because those were personal stories from his time in Vietnam and his feelings about Vietnam and everything. But he he did this for the studio, and Orion, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but it wasn't a success of a film. And because of the way that this film ended up performing, he wasn't able to do those two films until much later in the decade. So it's interesting the way that these things kind of uh, play, but it, I found it interesting that, oh, he'd already actually written those scripts, or at least like early stages of them. That is interesting, and I think probably worked out fortuitously for him because he became a better filmmaker to make harder films. Yeah, right. Do we, we want to talk about Stone as a director anymore? I feel like we've kind of yeah, seeded that. I feel like we have. Okay. And and right. we've already talked about him a little bit as a writer as well, but he he wrote this script. Uh, he had yeah. won the Academy Award a couple years earlier for Midnight Express, wrote and directed this. This was his big directing opportunity with the studio. And he's going to shift back to just screenwriting for a while. So we're going to be talking after this, we'll be talking specifically just about projects he wrote because he kind of wasn't able to direct for a while after this. So it's good to just make sure we're addressing him as both the director and the writer. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else in the cast you feel like we need to call out that we haven't mentioned already? We talked about Bruce McGill. Good to see him. Yep. Uh, Annie McEnroe, she was the uh, college student that he ends up um, having the affair with, Stella. She's one of those faces that I had seen before, and I was just like, I don't know where I had seen her before, but she was in uh, Beetlejuice. That's something that she was in. Um, she so was funny. in. She'll be in Wall Street. We'll be talking about her again there. Born on the 4th of July. At this point, she hadn't been in much before this. Um, 
And so I hadn't seen her in much. She is, though, married to Edward R. Pressman, the producer on the film. So it kind of go, hmm, okay. Hmm. I, I don't know hmm. when they met, but uh, it could have been this particular film. Um, but uh, they are married. All right. I don't know. Is there anyone else? Oh, Vivica Linfers. She plays, as, as, as credited, the Doc Tress. Which okay, what's up with that? <laughs> frankly, I I had a real problem with that. Is that a thing that we that we missed? I had never heard that ever. I hadn't either. I didn't know that people at some point felt you know we need to define these titles by the gender. So everything that is one thing, how can we how can we split it into a gendered version of that? Steward, yeah. stewardess, actor, actress. Doctor, doctress. It, you know, if there is ever anything that reminds me, and and I am one of those that I uh, grew up with actors and actresses, I, not just you know actors or performers and performer performeresses. <laughs> I grew up with it, but if there's ever anything that makes me drop that, it's hearing doctress because I find it so ridiculous, ridiculous, horrible, just horrible. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Vivica Linfers does play the credited doctress. I'll just leave it there because that's what they yeah. call her. She is uh, one of those faces that has been around for a very long time. She's a Swedish actress and uh, <laughs> actress there. I just said it. She's a Swedish performer who yeah. had been in a lot of things. She was one of those people who had just done a wide variety of films uh, and theater. She was largely also very... Um, prominent in theater. But I think really starting in the, I, I don't know if I can completely say this because I don't know her career that well, but she certainly started landing a lot more films in the 80s or taking these roles that happened to be sci-fi horror types of films. Like she plays Aunt Bedelia in Creepshow the very next year. Mm -hmm. She's in Stargate. She's man. in Stargate. She was in Exorcist 3. So she ended up being in some films that's like, yeah, okay. She's, she's definitely doing, I don't know if she was just doing it because they're, you know, at a certain point in your career, you know, like, let's do something a little more fun. And I mean, she did plenty yeah. of other things too, but I enjoy seeing her. I think that her scene is small, but I actually really enjoy what we see of her as the, as the character. As the characteress. Characteress. Andy. <laughs> oh, jeez. The only other person that I was going to call out was Charles Fleischer, who plays the, the uh, you know, the new comic book artist who his agent brings in to kind of take over for him after he loses his hand. I was like, who is that? I know that. And it's Charles Fleischer, of course, um, uh, Roger Rabbit. So I thought that was kind of fun to see him. I have a, I have a Charles Fleischer story. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Tell. So when I was, it was before, before I went to see you with you, I went to Drew University in, in New Jersey mm -hmm. and uh, my sophomore year there, uh, we had an event and we had a whole bunch of speakers and he was, he was one of the speakers and I was assigned to give him a tour of campus. That was the thing. Like when all the speakers came in, they each got a student to walk them around and show them campus. and he came dressed in all black and dark glasses like like i don't know if he was trying to be recognized or not but he stood way out uh in our little new england campus and he didn't care a lick about the tour not <laughs> one iota i think maybe he said 10 words 
and none of them were please or Eddie. So uh, that's my whole story. Charles Fleischer, I gave him a tour. He was not interested. So you were you were his Chadwick Boseman. I was his Chadwick Boseman. Right? <laughs> you heard that story, right? <laughs> you must tell the story. Angela Bassett talked about, uh, mostly, unfortunately, after he had passed yeah. away, but this was her story of rock recollection, was when they were first on set together for Black Panther, uh, and she was playing his mother. He reminded her, oh, I, I was at, I can't remember which uh, school that he was at, but I was the one assigned to you to give you the tour on the campus. And uh, it was just like from that moment, uh, it was kind of like a very kind of tender reconnection. Yeah. But uh, I would not have a tender I, I, reconnection with Charles Fleischer. He would not remember me and may not even remember that the school existed. <laughs> I think yeah, I right, did damage to his longstanding impression of the school. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, good times. Oh, well, there it is. Charles Fleischer. Camera, King Baggett. King Baggett. What a name. Uh, King Baggett is still around, but I don't think he is working in the industry anymore. As of like 93, he seems to have completely dropped off the map. Seems to have a career that lasted from pretty much the uh, the early 80s, like 1980 to 1993 and that was it uh, other than maybe like some camera operator work in the late 70s but my goodness um, did he do some movies right i mean obviously cheech and chong's next movie was the very first movie uh that he, <laughs> he did and then now the hand um uh, dr detroit madonna's uh burning up second thoughts last starfighter oh god you devil yep Revenge of the Nerds, Tough Guys, Vice yep. Versa, Dream a Little Dream, Where the Day Takes You, Ending with Boiling Point, uh, uh, Wesley Snipes and Dennis Hopper. I wonder how many, how many people working in Hollywood, uh, their last films are either Wesley Snipes or Dennis Hopper films. <laughs> <laughs> Ending on a high note? <laughs> it depends on your perspective, I guess. Right. <laughs> You know, I thought the camera work was fine. I, I liked the lighting. I thought that uh, I, I I think that uh, between Stone and Baggett, they found the right tone for it. I think everything worked throughout. Mm -hmm. And I, like I said, I did enjoy the the drops to black and white in, in the color treatments. I thought they I thought they effectively portrayed this particular person's mental state. Yeah, I agree. Um, and we, we got to talk about your favorite Jay. Oh, James Horner, one of my 10 J's of, of film composers. Yeah, I this was an early one for him, but I just, I, the music, it's not a score I had actually ever listened to, but listening to it throughout the film, so often you can just hear those James Horner elements that come through that clearly were something that he used often in his work that was a way to kind of, uh, kind of just kind of give it the tone that he that he wanted but it just became so stuff that he used so frequently in his work and I, I you know i still really liked it i just liked hearing a james horner score that i had never actually listened to before i'm like oh there he is it was it was kind of nice i assume we have no facts and tidbits but i wonder if you're going to talk about the planned sequel left for vengeance <laughs> get it it's like the other hand right left for left hand yeah. do you get it i will say I have heard nothing of uh, any remakes of this film or sequels, but 
Yeah. I was somewhat, I don't know if it's just because the film bombed that it did poorly, but this seems like the sort of thing that I was expecting perhaps like uh, a comic book adaptation to have been done because of the nature of the story. It seemed like one that would work. You know, I just felt like this is one that that could warrant that or even kind of a, a graphic novel sequel or something like that. Um, but yeah, no yeah. one seems interested. Vengeance in the other hand. <laughs> Uh, okay, how to do it award season. Over at the Saturn Awards, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, Vivica Linfers, even though she's hardly in the film and only at the very end, she did get nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her little bit there as the Doctress. <laughs> Let me once again remind you. She did learn out, lose out to Frances Sternhagen in Outland, who we very much liked in that particular film when we talked about it. Yes. So, I think that's completely warranted, especially since Sternhagen has a much larger presence in the film. Yeah. And then at the Stinkers, the Bad Movie Awards, uh, Mara Hobel, the, the young girl who plays their daughter, she was nominated for the worst on-screen hairstyle. And I'm like, it was 1981. I didn't think it was that bad, especially for a kid. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a rude nomination. But she did lose to Barry Humphreys in shock treatment. Worst on-screen hairstyle, Barry Humphreys in shock treatment. Uh, I need a refresher. Well, that was the uh, um, Rocky Horror sequel. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, okay. it's ter- it, it is terrible. That's, I can give that to him. Yeah. yeah, I'm good with that one. Yep. Yep, that's a fair win. All right, bad hair. How to do at the box office? You say it bombed. Yeah, Stone's movie weirdly only has its budget information listed in Canadian dollars. I have no idea since this was all shot in and around L.A., I don't know what was going on with them planning all of this. But anyway, once I did the conversion, the film ended up costing about $7.7 million to make, which is about $21.8 million in today's dollars. The movie opened April 24th, 1981, opposite Catalani and Little Britches, Ms. 45, Night School, and Take This Job and Shove It. This movie did poorly, only earning $2.4 million at the box office, or $6.9 million in today's dollars. That gives it an adjusted loss per finished minute of 140, almost $144,000. So that was uh, not so great. And the failure of this film at the box office did put a riff in Stone's relationship with Orion. And as I said earlier, it pushed him out of directing and back into just writing for a good number of years. Well, it'll be interesting to see where he comes back. I'm even more interested to see uh, how you rank it. Mm, yeah, let's find out. <laughs> Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, you will uh, go straight to this movie in the flick chart database where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right. First up, the hand or the birdcage? The birdcage. Yeah, absolutely. The birdcage. The hand or the jerk? Weirdly, these are so far are all the noun titles. <laughs> yeah, right. The noun. I mean, the noun. <laughs> I'm the noun, too. The jerk. The jerk. The hand or gone with the wind? Oh, dear. Uh, probably right. gone with the wind. Yeah, gone with the wind. The hand or next Friday? The hand. I will say the hand. The hand or manhunt? Some Fritz Lang. Manhunt. Manhunt. 
the hand or outbreak. <laughs> helicopter, though. <laughs> Uh, outbreak. I was going to say, we had no fun helicopter chases in the hand. <laughs> I will say outbreak. The hand or alien resurrection? Uh, alien resurrection. Alien resurrection. The hand or Friday after next? Friday after next. Really? I'm going to say the hand here. Um, you know, okay. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's, me- let's take it. Okay, night. here we go. All right, here we go. Uh-huh. One, One, two, two three, three, scissors, scissors, rock, scissors. <sighs> the hand takes it's always it. that pattern. Yeah, the hand or underworld to... awakening. This is the futuristic, twelve years later movie. Um, I you know I'm kind of I, I guess I could go either way, I, uh, but probably awakening. I'll give it to you. Underworld Awakening, sure. All right. Well, that lands the hand in spot 457 on our chart. 457 out of 489. It's only a 7%. Pretty low. Yeah, it did not do well. Mm-hmm. I uh, It's it's one of those movies where it's roundly um, panned. It didn't do well in the box office. It's fun to, to talk about, um, but it also didn't, didn't do well on my own flick chart. How did it do on yours? Yeah, it didn't do that well. It landed in spot 3862 out of 4552, which is about a 15%, so a little higher than us. Yeah, it it didn't do very well for me either. It landed at 1416 out of 1485 on my flick chart, which is uh, 5%. Mm. But it just came up against everything. It was just so easy. It was just such an, it was, there was no conflicted, <laughs> like I didn't rock, paper, scissors myself at all. And I do that often now <laughs> i'd like to see that yeah uh so according to the algorithm this should be a uh zero stars uh over at letterbox.com slash the next reel um it's not a zero star movie that's ridiculous um but but it's not great it's not a a you know five star either i'm thinking one and a half two stars i'm kind of in that range right now where are you yeah i'm at two stars i think that there's enough interesting stuff here to actually make it watchable i found it very watchable i'd even give it a heart because i had fun with it i would i would watch this again it's a late night you know bad movie kind of watch but i had fun with it i really just love watching michael Caine. um so i two stars and a heart for me i'm with you i'll do the same two stars and a heart that feels good all right, that's where we sit. Where do we go from here? Well, like I uh, hinted, we're going to be talking about Oliver Stone as a writer for a little while now. We're going to be looking at Conan the Barbarian, which I haven't seen in a little while, but I'm looking forward to jumping back into that one to check out. This was uh, the very next year, 1982, directed by John Milius. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Long time. Yeah, me too. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. I went straight to the bottom because uh, <laughs> I had to 
I had to see. Um, I had to see what the what, just the scope of derision for this movie, revulsion for this movie. Uh, would you like to? Would you like to do the honors? Would you like me to go first? How you feeling about yours? Good. I will. I'm going to go first, but I have three very very brief ones. Outstanding. All Very right, brief. They're all uh, either in the one star or one and a half. First up is by Lily. One star. Day in the life of Sir Michael Caine. Thank you, Lily. <laughs> Next up, oh, I have. <laughs> that was it. I thought that was I told you. like a they're title. <laughs> no, yeah, they're short. Day in the life of Michael Caine. Uh, uh-huh. Second up is by Deep Blue versus Siri. Uh, gave it a one and a half and said, Michael Caine versus a rubber hand. What a performance. Last okay. up, Matt H. also gave it a one and a half and says, needed more hand. Yeah, you know, I think that could be the most uh, <laughs> su- a substantive review of the lot. Right. <laughs> uh, I, mine is a one star from Brock who says, it's 2,721 miles with a drive lasting 41 hours from New York City to Big Bear Lake, California. Filming location for Oliver Stone's directorial debut fe- feature debut, The Hand. Now, walking... From New York City to Big Bear amounts to approximately 2,691 miles and 884 hours. Imagine our anti-protagonist Michael Caine's disembodied hand following him all the way across the country. And I don't know why Stone didn't make that movie instead. It definitely couldn't be any worse than The Hand, centered around a thoroughly contemptible and rather uninteresting main character. I mean, by all rights, his strong hand should only be less contemptible and uninteresting. Kane took several pictures for the money, including The Swarm, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and Jaws the Revenge, and this might be his worst performance during his cinematic horror period. <laughs> I just want to know if the hand signals its, signaled its turns and how it avoided road construction and how it got its jollies. At the end of the hand, though, one thing is certain. I lifted my right hand and gave it a certain finger. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant one-star review. Thanks, Brock. And thank you, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.